This podcast series is brought to you from the University of Winchester. We invite you to listen in as we talk with both academics and practitioners about their approaches to peace building and conflict transformation, discussing some of the most complex and pressing challenges we face in the world today. Thank you very much for joining us today. My name is Professor Anna King and I am from the Centre of Religion, Reconciliation and Peace. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Mukti Suvedi, who is speaking from Nepal, from Kathmandu, I think. Mukti has been a peace practitioner, educator, facilitator, mentor and coach for over 15 years. He's lived and worked in South Asia and has developed and implemented multiple peace projects and programs, incredibly experienced as a peace builder and conflict transformer. So I think the last time we met was actually in Lumbini and Kathmandu when we were talking about peace initiatives um, coming from Nepal. So um, we're very interested to, to learn about your experience. I think one of the questions I'd like to ask is, Nepal has transitioned from violent conflict during the last few decades to peace building, and it's gone from being a kingdom to a federal structure. So what, is your, what are your thoughts on this transformation? How has it affect, affected society? Thank you very much, Anna, for, for giving me this opportunity to come and speak uh, for the podcast. Uh, and I'm so glad uh, to be part of it. Uh, thank you very much for your questions. Yes, mm, Nepal has passed the violent conflict and it lasted from 1996 to 2006. That's what I call a dark period. You know, I was working in Nepal for peace building and where I was traveling in the remote areas during the conflict, uh, supporting the conflict affected communities. I still remember those days when I when I was captivated for almost six hours uh, for you know for being a peace worker, right? You really? Have to make yeah. Uh, well, we passed that stages, uh, and now we are into. Uh, well, I, I think I, will, I don't have to go details into the um, uh, you know impact of the conflict. Uh, if you want me to go, I could really you know give a glimpse of it. Over over sixteen thousand people died, and over one hundred thousand people were displaced. Uh, I was involved in doing a research on on the impact of uh, conflict on displacement of people. Yeah, well, there were there were very chaotic, um, intense kind of situations with the communities and uh, people living in Nepal. It's not only impacted. Um, the political sphere, but it has impact the whole dynamics of society and communities uh, during those times. Yeah, but luckily, well, everything ended after the peace accord has been signed, and uh, and the political parties parties involved in conflict they were they were negotiating for the peace in two thousand and six, and everything ended. Uh, the country transit from the conf violent conflict state to um, a post-conflict scenario 
where uh, 240 years of old morality was a kind of questions uh, and and there was an issue of combatant management, arms management, where all these aspects were also managed after that. Uh, the key pillar of transitional justice were also touched upon. Uh, you know, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission has formed, but well, it's it's obvious it couldn't really function well for the effective effective uh, management of all the issues. Mm. But yeah, well, all these aspects has been performed um, uh, and the new constitutions was drafted uh, in 2015 uh, by the voted by the majority of uh, the member of parliament. Uh, and then the disaster happened, the earthquake of 7.8 magnitude. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That must have been terrible. Yeah. Well, when the country was transitioning from all this aspect and trying to, you know, move forward and the whole kind of scenario was changed after the disaster. Uh, yeah, well, many people died, almost 8,000 people and 29,000 were injured, badly injured uh, out of uh, 75, 76 districts. Well, 14 were most affected, and other 32 were also kind of mildly affected. It was it was kind of a, a second pain from conflict, right? Uh, and how, how did the government respond to that? Were, you know, did international aid come in? Was the government effective in dealing with that crisis, or you know, how successful was Nepal in coming out of that? Mm -hmm. That's a, yeah, that's a good question, Anna. Well, if you look into the Haiti cases, Haitian cases, well, uh, Nepal could have been a Haiti, uh, but the Nepali government uh, stood, well, they stand stood um, and they regulated different international organizations coming in. Um, at, at, at the beginning, they weren't kind of, uh, well, I should say they weren't well prepared to address uh, the earthquake of such magnitude. Uh, but with the support from international communities, right after the earthquake, uh, SARS community were coming in from different countries. Um, they supported in search and rescue to the government and police, Nepal police and armies were mobilized to do the search and rescue operations and uh, provide emergency food. Yes. Well, have, being a poor country, they couldn't really support the communities at once and they weren't well prepared for the disaster of such magnitude. Whereas with support of development partners, Nepal was able to address, uh, but there are many cases of so many, so many duplications of relief, they couldn't really reach into the rural areas where were kind of some of the issues that were raised. Uh, but with the help of the international donor communities and partners, uh, Nepal was able to handle that. Um, situation rightly. Um, how, how did the federal structure then, how did it go on to affect society? Has it, has Nepal progressed as a whole or, you know, are there groups that are excluded from economic development? Um, do you say something about the contemporary okay. situation? Yes. Okay, yeah, thank you. Uh, well, Nepal has been the unitary and, and 
uh, unitary uh, power centralized kind of concept before uh, Maoist, uh, you know, before the peace agreement and the whole whole change in the dynamics. Mm, you know, the king, 207, or, yeah, 207 years of uh, kingship um, in, in Nepal, or the kingdoms, you know, ruled by the kings, uh, that was, uh, that was overthrown after the new constitutions was uh, introduced. And it was called uh, the Republic Federalist uh, and the whole country was divided into seven provincial uh, part. Uh, and now if you look into the structure, it's seven state, seven province and then the 753 local government bodies Mm, uh, well, the country that ne never had uh, exercised the decentralized uh, powers uh, at once went to like into the seven provincial government and the 753 local governments bodies uh, has a really, I see this, the whole federal structure is uh, filled, filled with challenges actually. Really? Yeah. Could yeah. uh, you say a little bit more about those challenges. Okay. Please. Uh, <laughs> it's yeah, well, fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> it really is. The first thing, the first thing is like the naming of the state, actually, uh, the, or the province. You know, well, it's it's almost a year has passed after the elections. Um, almost, almost, almost now two years, right? The naming of the province is still there. Well, first, you know, the province they they are unnamed. And naming is, naming is different stories. And having the headquarters of that province is another story. The people, you know, people should agree on where the province headquarters should be located, right? And, right. It, and it, it's something to do with the people's sentiments. You can't, just, you can't just name it, or you can't just say this is going to be the headquarters of province number five or, you know, so these these two are the major challenges that still has to go to to really you know say that these are the province now with these names and with this headquarters. It's just a structural context. Besides that, there's a federal structure, provincial structure, and then the local structures, and the power sharing between all these three components is going to be another major challenges that Nepal has to deal with. Mm -hmm. The local governments really think that they have the power um, in imposing anything, right? And mm -hmm. that they, they see provincial level government is a threat to exercise that power. Mm -hmm. Whereas uh, the provincial governments really think how to, how to become a bridge between federal and local but they, they see themselves to become a pendulum in between. And then, <laughs> yes. and then the federal structures, they really should be allowing their power slowly towards locals and provincial, but it doesn't seem like it's still in the same mindset that they come up with, right? The holding mechanism, our holding, power holding mechanism. So everything oh. is, everything, Everything it looks like a centralized again. <laughs> so it's it's still very hierarchical and yeah, yeah. and and you know, country-centered authority. Yeah, yeah right. that's true. 
that's right. But um, so you don't see any advance in democratization, inclusion at local level of different groups and women and so on. That hasn't it hasn't happened yet. Uh, well, it will take time, Anna. It actually, will take time. Mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, well, the whole structure stuff uh, really has to be on place to be to be able to you know, incorporate and embrace all the issues that their province and, you know, government have. When you are, when you really are into a power conflict, mm-hmm. I think these issues are overshadowed mm-hmm. and these issues won't really get, get attention within the, within, within the provincial and the local government. Very mm-hmm. recently, when, when we were locked down in COVID-19, there were six Dalit, Dalit young youths. They were killed. Really, yeah. really. Yeah, in the name of in the name of love marriage or Dalit marriage. Whole really. Community. Yeah. So this this kind of you know uh, issues are emerging because because the whole system it's still there is a whole big conflict or or discourses in that big system, and then once it's settled then the local government responsibility, they will understand what their responsibilities are, what their core areas, where they need to focus on, uh, highlighting the issues of Dalit, highlighting the issues of women, and the name of inclusions. These these are overshadows now. Mm -hmm. But still, still the federal government is holding. Holding power. Holding the Muslim, like they they are holding the Muslim commissions, they are holding inclusion commissions, they are holding women commissions, they are holding all. In my in my position, these commissions should be given to provincial or local. You know, this should be the owner of the commissions into their communities and and the provincial government, not the whole big federal is holding that commissions and having their offices in Kathmandu wouldn't really uh, give the aspirations of uh, the inclusions in communities yeah thank you that's that's really helpful and interesting um you actually mentioned covid19 when you talked about the dalits and so on um i think one of the most interesting things for our listeners will be how is nepal dealing with this terrible situation i mean we are suffering in the UK, but presumably you don't have quite the same sort of medical infrastructure. And how is it has affected ordinary Nepalis? Uh, that's that's a that's a uh, that's a big question, Anna. We 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 all Nepalese are really worried about it. Honestly, really, yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, for the few months, we we didn't even have cases, and we were like, okay, Nepal. Paul has uh, kind of um, uh, I don't know whether people were talking about we were we were so immune towards it or something like that. But yeah, and you're a very in, young country, aren't you as well? So presumably, yes. Yeah. Sorry, and, forgive me, Karen. Yes. Things change when there were cases. Now almost we have like over seventy thousand cases. Really? Recovery, yeah, recovery rates seems to be high, and over 480 people died because of COVID. And there were several lockdowns over over the period of all this from March on, onwards this September, right? There were two, two, two times we were, in, uh, we were in lockdown, a severe lockdown actually. Uh, 
were people who were in daily wages. They were the ones who really suffered. Really, yes. Yeah, and this brings people confined into one house with a lot of tensions, issues, conflicts. That's that's presumed in in one house, right? And this has really increased the cases of suicide. And there were over like 3,000 people in the records who died because of suicide. Uh, and well, when, when you compare with the COVID, it's, it's nothing, right? Like COVID is just 380 or, or now 480. And when you compare with the suicide, died, died by suicide, it's almost 3,000 people who died. And the situations like the economic aspect, the social aspects, and everything's got confined into the four walls now. Uh, you don't have money. If you have a bank loan, the bank will pressure you. If you are on mortgage, yes. Lockdowns, no food to eat, no food, no work. Um, many people were jobless. They were, they, they had to leave the job because of this COVID scenario. Many businesses were closed because of so many, you know, impact. Even the domestic violence and then the the male, you know, husband and wife cases as well. Are are so many so many social stigmas cases has increased this uh, mental health, mental well-being of people as well, and and the societal has increased. If you look into the hospital ratios, I think. The Nepal government has very limited health facilities in Nepal, right? Uh, where most of the hospitals are centered in urban areas and not, not in rural areas. Uh, the ventilators things, these are, these are very few in numbers. Uh, so because of that government is also really worried about uh, the impact that, that it might come in the future. Uh, so that's why they're imposing the lockdowns, the severe lockdown so that people can stay in house. But whereas lockdown is a good approach, but you know, you one has to uh, be supported. Where in Canada, in America, in, in even in UK, I, government give them the subsidy so mm -hmm. that people will stay and use the funds. Mm -hmm. But here is different, you know. No subsidy at all. Yeah, no subsidy at all. And government government is poor. They can't really provide it, right? And lockdown with no support has really created a chaotic situations in the community. And has, one aspect. Sorry, I was going to ask has this affected mostly the very poor, or has it had an effect throughout society? And is it mostly in towns or rural areas that the effect has been felt most? Yeah, well. Well, if in the rural areas, well, people started doing their agriculture. You know, land were left bare, and they, some of them they really go back to villages and they started farming their land. And I think there's a supportive system. You know, back in past, they used to support one another's with with food um, and others. But I'm talking mostly about the urban poor and and those who really are rely on daily wages. Yes, I think that these are the communities that really affect. And those who get the salaries, the government employees, and others, those who really get the salaries, I think they, they, they are not much impacted, like those who really rely on daily wages and those who are really poor. It sounds a very tragic and terrible situation, Mukti. Really terrible. 
I know you've been doing some work on religious leaders. Um, I think it would be fascinating to hear about that. Um, could, could you talk a little about that, please? Uh, okay, Anna, thank you very much. Uh, uh, you know, Nepal being a Hindu country, mm -hmm. all these years Nepal was uh, a Hindu country. Uh, certainly after 2015, when, well, new constitution declared Nepal as a secular state. 81%, 81 point something, you know, that is the populations of Hindu in Nepal. So most, uh, well, some of the Hindu groups are where they are not happy about Nepal being secular. Uh, in the midst of this, there are a lot of um, incident that I'm researching on that happened in time frame. Um, it, it's more a discourse, conflict um, that arise in in sense of religious or caste-based discriminations. Very recently, when the country was uh, in lockdown, six of the youth uh, were killed, thrown in the river uh, in the name of caste-based discriminations. Uh, so these kind of incidents are really happening in the rural community still. Uh, so in, in, in this time, uh, religious leaders, they really have to be cautious and come forward to, to recognize uh, each other's religions uh, to embrace the differences and love and uh, I, I argue mostly uh, on being uh, pro-existence rather than coexistence, uh, which means you embrace, you love, you protect um, and you support one another. Uh, I was um, mentioning the example of uh, if a certain Hindu organization, if the, if the chairman is Hindu and if he is in call for staff, you look for the Hindu candidates rather than others. So, I mean, stopping all this aspect, hiring a capable person despite of his race, religion, uh, caste, I think this is what the religious leaders will have to promote. Uh, last year in 20, 2019, uh, I was called as a keynote speaker uh, for addressing um, this workshop on uh, you, you know, impact of uh, religious leaders uh, in creating the social harmony, where I spoke pretty much on pro-existent morality in Nepal rather than co-existent morality in the, in, in, in the declarations of secular state. Mm -hmm. And secular for common people is really a very vague understanding. Uh, it should be kind of quite clear. Uh, even our constitution need to be uh, need to be addressing or making it clear what uh, what the religion prefix is or there's a statement that one can uh, follow their religion prefix protect and practice so if they can really clarify what all these three component means so that the um, common people can understand uh, this the real core meaning of secular state so secular um, I think uh, we talked about this at one time before, but um, secular here tends to be in opposition to religious. But I think we mentioned that in India it tends to mean uh, respect for all religions. Do you think that that's what it means in Nepal, basically, that you know the government doesn't judge between religions; it supports all? Yeah. Uh... 
Well, the declaration of secular state uh, in Nepal was uh, where it came as once and people, you know, having majority of Hindu populations, people weren't expecting that they were at least expecting um, the confrontation or, or there are discussions with common people um, or, or some other aspects rather than and they were expecting some groundwork to be to be done before addressing these issues uh, but uh, the the constitutional assembly declared nepal as a secular state but the homework was left behind mm -hmm. to really make uh, understand people what the secular uh, country or what secular state means uh, it means that we are we are we are addressing uh, or respecting one another religions as a Nepali, and we are supporting one another. This is what the secular statement. There's a confusion actually in people. Uh, people at the beginning saw the anger because they declared the country country because they declared the country um, secular, um, and uh, you know the Catholic Church was bombed, uh, killing a couple of people. Mocks were attacked. Uh, and this kind of incident did happen once the country was declared secular. But before people were mingling, they were living together, they didn't really feel that uh, tension, whether the tensions, the suppressive tension was there, it wasn't exposed, but after the declaration, it was, it was really exposed and people lost their life. There's a statement in a, in a constitution which says, uh, you can't, you can, con conversion is illegal, you can't really convert people. Mm, and the Christian believe that it is, uh, it is uh, the threat to their religions because uh, it's targeted for Christians, but whereas Muslims and others really doesn't see in that way. Mm, and there were a lot of incidents that happened, you know, the Christians, uh, people were, were imprisoned, they were, uh, they were taken into custody. They were, you know, charged. Mm, I think it's because uh, the Dalit people, the, the lower caste peoples, or or those who are marginalized, are converting to Christianity. It's because uh, you know the caste system. In caste system, they really felt that mm, they weren't. They, they were Hindu, but they weren't allowed to go into the temples. They weren't allowed to fetch water from uh, the same taps. Uh, so these people really, you know, change their religions to be Christians and where they feel they're happy, you know, other groups in the fundamentalist groups, they, they really see this, that, okay, people are uh, changing to other religions, yeah, and this has to be stopped, yeah. Mm. Do, do you think, um, I, I'm quite interested in this, is there a, a movement upwards in Dalit? Are Dalits moving upwards into the middle classes? Are they becoming more politically active? Um, is, is the caste structure actually diminishing its hold on the people? Well, in, well if, you, if you look into the religious practice, uh, uh, it, it's still still seen still, or is visible. Those who are at the higher class are, are Brahmins and Chetris. They are they are at the high, highest level of um, mm. in the political uh, or in other areas, right? 
uh, whereas uh, the Dalit and marginalized communities are are at the low are still at the struggling level, you know, to be able to or to lift them come to that positions. Nepal government really has to work hard, and the other stakeholders who really work together with the Nepal governments and NGOs and organizations, uh, they really need to work hard in changing the mindset of a people from from top down going on to women, does that mean that women experience a double discrimination in a sense that they're discriminated by caste, but also perhaps by gender? And will religious, are religious leaders um, looking at that and are they concerned and is there activism going on in that area to advance women's participation? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, actually, there are certain, certain uh, believes that discriminates women's in religious practices or rituals. Mm, I think this is what a, a, a leader, a, a, a really transform, transformative religious leader need to do that. <laughs> and are they doing it? I mean, are you, are you finding religious leaders are um, trying to maintain those kind of programs or are you finding some resistance? Yeah, well, obviously, again, it will take time. If governments' rules and regulations or laws are kind of more stricter, I think it will also mm, uh, resolve in, in time. Uh, but it's, you know, it's really very difficult to change that mindset uh, that's which you are following for so many years. Mm. I think they need to be, they need to be taught, they need to be trained, they need to be uh, so that they understand what really it means and how they can resolve it very amicably. I think now we go on to perhaps what has to be the last question, which is your own experiences. Um, I mean, I'm very interested in in what what you've been doing and what your projects are, how you see your future. I mean, could you say something about that, please, about your own work? Thank you, Anna. Uh, oh, it has a long story. Uh, uh, I was raised by a single mom uh, of a Welsh's woman, and she was widow when she was nineteen. Oh, uh, that's yeah. very young, very young. Yeah, and, uh, and yeah, in, in in that culture, in that context, in uh, in those in those days. Um, uh, the whole the whole community is uh, discriminated. Her being a widow in nineteen, uh, they they ostracized her. She has to come to the new place, the very different place, and she had to raise her kids uh, with no means of support, no no means of um, you know support in terms of financial and other resources. And luckily, she, got, she was a police officer then when she got into the police force. And she happened to be the first 13th women uh, police women in those times. Yeah, she was ready to accept all the challenges um, for the kids and she became the police, um, police women. That's how she raised us. Um, and she always tells the story how she was treated um, being widowed and being single in, in that rural communities. Uh, so I, I really feel there are lots of women 
who are in a similar situation all over the world. And I really want to support them. And I started uh, training youth um, very recently, uh, giving them the name of entrepreneurship for peace building. Having, having done all the peace work and all these years experiences, I think um, there's a gap in between academic world and practical world. So I want to build a bridge between academic world and the practical world too. So my core interest will be into teachings uh, at the university levels where I could teach, coach, and mentor teachers to really understand uh, the core values of peace building uh, and could produce a real dedicated peace practitioners uh, who would work all over the world for peace and development. Well, that sounds wonderful. And I must just ask you, um, we actually met, didn't we, in Lumbini? And I don't think we have talked at all about the development there and the progress made. I dreamt about a peace center in Nepal, uh, which could act um, internationally. And Nepal is in a position to share the story, the success stories, how uh, they transformed the violent conflict into uh, a peace. Uh, so it has a potential to share the world that it's possible for peace. Uh, uh, and Lumbini is a place where Gautam Buddha, the fountain of Buddhism, was born. So as I had an experience uh, talking to Christians communities, Muslim communities, and other Hindu communities, uh, where the Lumbini, the, the fountain of Buddhism, uh, tend to be a place where all the religious could come together uh, uh, as a Nepali. Uh, so I think I choose Lumbini because of that reason. The national boards um, uh, very soon uh, will be having a board meetings so that this will approve this board and this board will take in charge uh, to start the peace center in Lumbini. Well, that sounds very hopeful and I hope our university will be able to contribute to that and support you in any way that's possible. And Mukti, I want to thank you so much. Um, I very much enjoyed uh, this podcast. It's my very first and I found it absolutely fascinating. So uh, I'd just like to express my gratitude and that of my centre. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you, Anna. Uh, it's my pleasure and I'm so thankful for your center to be, you know, I, I, I was so glad to share my experiences, my stories and uh, my learning experiences. Uh, thank you very much.